I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's sticks? Their wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate? I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. I like to tell people I came from a cornbread household, so cornbread was always on the table. Not biscuits, but cornbread. Do you add sugar to the cornbread? Uh, no. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. This is part two of our series, By Us, For Everyone. It's a look at how Black American food is represented in media, past and present, and how those portrayals change when Black people are in charge of them. I do recommend you listen to this series in order, but you don't have to. Last week, we heard the story of Frida DeKnight, who became the first food editor at Ebony Magazine in 1946. And I visited the Ebony Test Kitchen, which was amazing, with another former food editor, Charlotte Draper. Ebony's founding mission was to paint a fuller picture of Black American lifestyles, beyond the stock stereotypes portrayed in white media. Ebony is no longer in print, but one food editor who's picked up where Frida and Charlotte left off is Nicole Taylor. You've heard Nicole here on the show before, and she just released her newest cookbook called Watermelon and Redbirds, a cookbook for Juneteenth and Black celebrations. We'll get to that later in the episode. Nicole's in her early 40s. She's from Athens, Georgia, not far from Atlanta. I grew up in a working class neighborhood in Athens. It is now called Chicopee Dudley. It is a neighborhood where my next door neighbor was the first black city council woman in the city. And my grade school teacher lived up the street. It is a neighborhood where people not only survived, they thrived and they owned their homes. In Nicole's house, there were always three magazines on the coffee table. Ebony and Jet Magazine and Essence. They were the Bible. I mean, I remember opening up Jet Magazine and seeing Whitney Houston's wedding To Bobby Brown, I remember seeing all of the braid styles in Essence magazine. And when I got my first job, I knew I was going to take that $100 and get my hair in braids, similar to Brandy or Queen Latifah. And Ebony, it was obviously bigger than Jet magazine and so much lifestyle. You get to see the behind the scenes of how people live, their houses. And of course, when you get to the very back, there was always a recipe. What was food like at home growing up? One of the weeknight meals that I remember and that I I would almost be ashamed of would be a pot of beans. And so I giggle now, you know, at being a member of Rancho Gordo's Bean Club and see how everyone in the culinary space and outside of the culinary space are, you know, talking and making these amazing heirloom beans. I'm like, wait, hold up. (laughs) These are some of the same beans that I was ashamed of. Why were you ashamed of them? Well, I just thought it was poor people's food. I wanted to like a Lunchable. (laughs) 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 Or I wanted to eat fast food or, you know, some packaged 
cereal that I saw in a commercial on TV. I mean, I grew up in the 80s. <laughs> I did not want the food from the garden that was outside. I mean, I ate it. And not only did I eat it, I was very blessed enough that I was in the kitchen and watched my great aunt and my mom make it. So today, Nicole appreciates the food her family cooked. But back then, she wanted an escape from it. And Ebony provided that. It wasn't just the food that I grew up eating on Sundays or the beans. It was something fancy, like something your auntie or your Sunday school teacher would be serving at your graduation party. Always some kind of jello with beautiful, glorious food styled in this magnificent way. The food presented in the food section a lot of times was food I'd never like heard of or I'd never tasted before. Or it wasn't just the same old, same old. It was definitely black food, but it was black food presented in a totally different way. And so what impact did that have on you and your perception of what is black food? I think I always knew that in my subconscious mind that black food wasn't just fried chicken and collard greens and macaroni and cheese. Just like black people on a monolith, deep down I always knew that the African-American dining table was way bigger than what media or other magazines or commercials told me. That feeling crystallized when Nicole went off to college, Clark Atlanta University, a historically black college in Atlanta. She met black folks there from all walks of life. And I was blown away to see black people who their parents were doctors. <laughs> and they, by the time they were in college, they already had been to Europe a million gazillion times. And guess what? They were vegetarian. All of these experiences at college, growing up, and the lifestyle magazines she was reading, all of that was shaping the way Nicole thought about food. When she moved to Atlanta after college, she worked various retail and nonprofit jobs. But in the background, I was obsessed with food. So I was like hosting midnight brunches. My place was always a place folks came to eat. I was buying a lot of magazines and ripping the recipes out and making them and doing the same thing with uh, newspapers. I was the person that people called and said, what's the latest, greatest, hottest place in Atlanta to eat? When Nicole moved up to Brooklyn in 2008, that obsession with food came with her. I was, like, going to New York City restaurants all the time and, like, spending all of my money, um, <laughs> you know, at Murray's, at Saxelby Cheese. I, I told people, you know, luckily I had a partner who could pay the rent because I probably would have had to leave New York because I would have spent all my money in restaurants and <laughs> farmer's markets, yeah. for sure. Eventually, Nicole was able to parlay that love of food into a job in food. She started doing community outreach for the Brooklyn Food Coalition, a food justice organization. That set her on the path that would become her career, not only working in the community, but also talking and writing and thinking about food for a living. In the following year, she started her own podcast and made a film about civil rights protests at a fast food restaurant in her hometown. All that eventually led her to pitch a cookbook, which she called Up South, Chasing Dixie in a Brooklyn Kitchen. And so this book, in addition to sort of typical soul food staples like cornbread, fried chicken, chow chow, you had poke salad frittata, collard green pesto with pasta, apple and bok choy salad. So 
you were pulling from the foods you grew up with, but also the foods that you were encountering and the ingredients you were encountering as you were exploring New York. Yeah. Poke salad. You called it poke, but it's poke. It's literally like poke. Yeah. It is a wild green that you find on the side of the road. And you have to pick it at a certain time because if you pick it where there's still these buds at the top, it's poisonous. But then you gather a bunch of it, you boil it down, you put a little onion, garlic, whatever you want, and you season it. And when I was writing the Up South cookbook, all of those memories came back to me of my mom going across the street to what's now North Oconee River Park and picking poke. And I put it in a frittata. I didn't grow up eating frittatas. But I was like, hey, this would be amazing to make a poke salad frittata. And and so that, but that perfectly kind of encapsulates the approach you had with this cookbook, which was really blending these different parts of your life experience. Totally. Now, I dug up a gem for you, Nicole. This is a clip <laughs> from your first appearance on The Sporkful. This is, tw- oh <laughs> <laughs> this is 2016, a year after Up South Cookbook came out. And this is you talking about the process of pitching this cookbook and trying to convince someone to publish it. We have the book proposal and we send it out. And the first thing people say is, well, is this a soul food book? Um, I felt like at first I was being put into a category and I almost was at the point of like, okay, I'm cool with this. I'm cool with changing my entire book. And then luckily I just kind of stayed in there and I'm sure my agent probably was like oh my gosh here this girl keeps talking about race but it's it it's true I mean people are thinking about that so you were battling this idea that as a black cookbook author you were expected to do a certain type of cookbook in the first part of this series last week we heard the story of Frida DeKnight who was the first food editor at Ebony magazine. She wrote The Date with the Dish Cookbook in 1948, which was later republished as The Ebony Cookbook. And in that book she has a quote that we read last week, but I I think it's worth hearing again and I would love to ask you to read it, please. It is a fallacy long disproved that Negro cooks, chefs, caterers, and homemakers can adapt themselves only to the standard Southern dishes. Like other Americans living in various sections of the country, they have naturally shown a desire to become versatile in the preparations of any dish, whether it's Spanish, Italian, French Balinese, or East Indian in origin. There are no set rules for dishes created by most Negroes. They just seem to have a way of taking a plain, everyday dish and improvising a gourmet's delight. Whether acquired or inherent, this love for food has given them the desire to make their dishes different, well-seasoned, and eye-appealing. I'm tearing up a bit. It's crazy. I didn't think I would tear up. But I literally read this. And I felt it. And I was like, wow, this is 1948. And here we are in 2022. Yes, things have gotten better. But she's saying almost identical what I said on the show. But I think and I feel like Frida tonight would be super proud of me and so many other Black cookbook authors who published cookbooks in recent years. But it's very emotional. I'm not going to lie to re- to read that because I feel it. I, I feel that at the, at the bottom of my toes, I totally feel what she's saying. 
I don't eat soul food every day. It's not <laughs> it's, it's, it's not who I am totally. It's my roots. It connects me to my people. It connects me going back four generations plus. But I'm also a woman who has visited the Philippines and I love me some garlic rice and I like to make it at home. (laughs) So, yes, black people are more than just corn pudding and sweet potato pie. And so when I wrote the Up South cookbook, I wanted to make sure that all of my experiences from childhood to college to New York City to family and friends that I've encountered along the way, that I made sure that those relationships were honored. Nicole stuck by her vision for the Up South cookbook and eventually found a home for it at Countryman Press. It was published in 2015. She began writing for more outlets like the New York Times, Esquire, and Food & Wine. She wrote a companion cookbook to the Tracy Morgan show, The Last OG. And then in 2019, she got a job as the executive food editor at Thrillist, a website that features food, drink, and travel recommendations. Now, Thrillist gets about 30 million unique visitors per month, and Nicole would be overseeing all of their food coverage. She said she went into the job with one big goal. To bust through the door and keep it open for other black and brown people who wanted to work in food media. It was not lost on me the first day that I went into Thrillist that I was one of the first Black women to lead a digital publication. I walked in the door determined to leave my mark, and I and I did. One of Nicole's first big changes was to revamp the way Thrillist did its annual Best New Restaurants list. Now, usually the way these lists work is one critic talks to trusted sources in different cities to find out the hot new places there. The critic then eats at those spots and picks the ones that make the list. Nicole thought, why don't we just ask those people with local knowledge to write the lists? It may sound simple, but it was actually pretty revolutionary. You see, the restaurant critics and national publications have often been white men. And when one of those white guys would reach out to his contacts around the country, he'd call on people in his social circle people with similar backgrounds. So he'd end up with a list of restaurants that skewed towards certain cuisines and neighborhoods and price points. Nicole made sure that black and brown people and women were among the trusted locals picking the best new restaurants. The end result was a list that featured a wider range of cuisines and price points than usually make this kind of feature. And under Nicole's direction, the Thrillist team won a James Beard Award for their best new restaurants coverage. I'm going to just say 100%. I changed the game in the way that best new restaurant packages were done in the food space. But before Nicole and her team found out they were nominated for the award, the pandemic hit. She was laid off in April 2020. She didn't want to talk with us about what happened at Thrillist. But when she first lost her job, she tweeted, Honestly, I feel free. While navigating a very white media space, I lost my voice, confidence, and passion. My time was up. Fortunately for Nicole, when she was laid off, she already had another plan in the works. Coming up, she puts it into action. Listen, the most beautiful things happened to me after my time at Thrillist. Stick around. Ooh, advertisements. Yummy. 
In the Pashman household, we're already big fans of Tillamook shredded cheese. In fact, I used it in developing many recipes in my cookbook. And now I'm getting into their ice cream. Tillamook ice cream is made with more cream, so you get smooth and dreamy scoops each time. You may not realize it, but this is why a lot of the store-bought ice cream doesn't taste the same as what you get in, like, in an ice cream parlor. But with Tillamook, they don't skimp on the cream. These people know dairy, okay? Tillamook makes a great, rich vanilla ice cream with real crushed vanilla bean seeds. They have an Oregon strawberry, sweet strawberry ice cream with ripe Oregon strawberry pieces. The one that I really love is the mudslide flavor, a smooth chocolate ice cream with a ribbon of rich fudge and chocolatey chips. You want to move the spoon around to get fudgy and chocolatey chips and the ice cream all in the same bite each time, and it's just so, so nice. And like I said, I just trust Tillamook when it comes to dairy. They make over 200 different dairy products, and the brand is farmer-owned and led by dairy experts. Find Tillamook ice cream near you at Tillamook.com. That's T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K.com. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. We have a dog. Her name is Sasha. She's almost four. She's a standard poodle. She's black and fluffy and soft and very adorable. And when we first got her, we took her to like this puppy kindergarten training class. The whole family went and, you know, they're teaching you how to use the treats and all this. The trainer watched Sasha for a bit and said, hmm, she's very food motivated. And my daughter, Emily, turned to me and said, she's a Pashman. (laughs) And so she is food motivated. And that's why we make a point of feeding Sasha high quality pet food. Founded in Hereford, Texas, Merrick has been crafting high-quality dog food for over 30 years. Real is Merrick's recipe, so they always use deboned meat, fish, or poultry as the number one ingredient. And let me tell you something. When it's dinner time, Sasha is motivated, okay? She is highly motivated to come in from patrolling the backyard at dinner, to get up off the couch. Whatever she's doing, she will drop it and come running. Check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. they got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I'm feeling great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button-down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer— 
Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash sporkful. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Last week in the first part of our series, By Us For Everyone, we heard the story of Frida DeKnight, the first food editor at Ebony. I also got to talk with the magazine's second food editor, Charlotte Draper. We visited the Ebony Test Kitchen together. It's now on display as part of an exhibit at the Museum of Food and Drink. While there, Charlotte reflected on some of the challenges that Black food writers have faced, then and now. There have been significant inroads There is a place at the table for more African-Americans and people of color today. And then there are also instances where you couldn't get a seat at the table. Well, let's build our own table. Charlotte also describes the incredible shrimp they served at the Ebony parties. That one's up now. Check it out. Okay, back to my conversation with Nicole Taylor. She was laid off from Thrillist in 2020. To appreciate what happened next, we first have to go back a bit. A decade earlier, Nicole started celebrating Juneteenth. Juneteenth commemorates June 19, 1865, the day that enslaved people in Texas were finally freed. It was more than two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, and the Civil War was already over. But some enslavers tried to hide the news until after that year's harvest. It took the arrival of Union soldiers to set the enslaved free. In recent decades, more Americans have started observing Juneteenth. Last year, it became a federal holiday. Nicole didn't grow up celebrating it, but when she was living in Brooklyn, she went to her first ever Juneteenth festival. The following year, she hosted a Juneteenth picnic at a park where she served pork shoulder, potato salad, pickled vegetables, cornbread, and strawberry crisp. That sounds really good. It became an annual tradition for Nicole. Then in 2017, she wrote her first national article about Juneteenth food. A year later, she was thinking about pitching her next cookbook. She was trying to come up with a concept that would have mass appeal. And so I was throwing out all these ideas to my agent, like, oh, I want to do a brunch book. Oh, I want to do a, a book about young moms and what are you, what foods you should be eating after having a baby. And she was looking at me like, walk, walk, walk. <laughs> She's like, what about Juneteenth? And I was like, huh? Why does she keep bringing this up? I'm like, nobody knows about Juneteenth. It's too niche. Like, I'm going to be experiencing the same exact thing that I experienced with the Up South cookbook. And she kept at it. So I'm like, fine, Juneteenth. As the book idea was percolating, Nicole got the job at Thrillist. So she put the book on pause. But when she was laid off less than a year later, she turned back to it and to other freelance writing. She was working on a Juneteenth piece about Black-owned businesses for the New York Times when a police officer murdered George Floyd. Protests about racial injustice erupted around the country. Nicole scrapped the article she was working on and rewrote it to focus more on how Black Americans were reacting to or participating in the protests. When the piece came out, it was called A Juneteenth of Joy and Resistance. That's one of my favorite articles, I must say. I feel like my heart and soul was in it. I remember crying. It, it was it was... It was a moment of clarity for me. It is the moment when I said Black Americans need this Juneteenth cookbook because we need a slice of joy. And all of this sorrow and all of this pain and all of this separation from our family and friends, how can I produce 
a cookbook that's full of recipes and full of stories. And so I knew at that moment that, yeah, this Juneteenth cookbook, I'm going to do this. And shortly after, we we sold a book. It sounds like your experience selling the Juneteenth cookbook was very different from trying <laughs> to sell Up South. Uh, Yeah, <laughs> totally different. And do you mostly attribute that to George Floyd and the, and the uprisings that followed and an increased sort of consciousness and awareness and effort? Mm. Yeah, that is a question that um, personally is a struggle for me to answer or even think about. It is a question that I've had to take to my altar. Um, you know, I pause thinking about it. Um I don't know if, you know, I I know that my work, uh, my recipes, and my writing is worthy. But I also know that George Floyd uh, is responsible, you know? The killing of George Floyd um, happening crazily helped me and it's a hard pill to swallow it is a hard thing to think about as you are trying to produce a cookbook about joy but that that idea is always with me like would I have had this opportunity without the killing of George Floyd summer of all those protests, the New York Times reported a spike in publishers buying cookbooks by Black authors. And because cookbooks take so long to put together, we're now seeing the results of that increased interest two years later. One of those books, of course, is Nicole's. It came out two weeks ago. It includes recipes for a bunch of alcoholic and non-alcoholic red drinks, because red drinks are a tradition on Juneteenth. So she has hibiscus tea, which some consider the original red drink. And then she has an Afro egg cream. And of course, in typical Nicole fashion, there are dishes that pull from a range of influences. Her beef ribs have harissa, her lamb chops are dressed with chimichurri. The book is called Watermelon and Red Birds, a cookbook for Juneteenth and Black celebrations. I asked Nicole about the significance of the title. I literally, Dan, remember sitting on the train pre-COVID, coming up with all these titles. My Juneteenth, Jubilee Juneteenth. And I'm like, nothing really works. I need something that just like really, really soulful and speaks to the past, the present, and the future of Juneteenth. And then it just hit me, redbirds, cardinals. I'm like, mm, that story that my mother used to tell me. Growing up, as I would be sitting in the kitchen and we would look out the window and on the little small rickety back patio, a red bird or cardinal would come and fly around, my mom would say, that's the ancestors, that's your cousin, that's somebody in the family coming back to say hello. Blow a kiss at them. It's good luck. That story stuck with me. It, it, it is a story that has origins in 
Native American culture. It is a story that I hear from so many people from the American South and from all over the country. And I was like, that's it. That is the title of my Juneteenth cookbook, Watermelon and Redbirds. As for the watermelon part of the title, that one's more complicated. Of course, there's a long history of racist depictions of Black people eating watermelon. When I first interviewed Nicole in 2016, she told me that as a kid, she knew when you're around white people, don't eat fried chicken and watermelon because there was a shame associated with those foods. But that didn't stop her from including a recipe for watermelon and lime salt in her first cookbook. Then last year, she did a recipe in food and wine for grilled watermelon, and she got pushback from some Black Americans. A Black entertainment and gossip site accused her of dancing, meaning she was trying to entertain non-Black readers. But Nicole kept at it. For her new cookbook, she not only included a recipe for grilled watermelon kebabs, she put watermelon in the title of the book. So I'm going to tell you a story, Nan, about watermelon for me. I totally remember hopping in the car, going to Bell's grocery store, and they would have these big, tall cardboard boxes with watermelons, like, stacked up to the ceiling, right? And I'd be eyeing that watermelon the whole entire time that my aunt or my mom would be rolling through the grocery store. And I would get in the car, and I would hear that watermelon going, bloop, 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 bloop. (laughs) In the trunk? Exactly. Rolling around, and I would be like, hey, when are we going to cut the watermelon? Are we cutting it today? Are we cutting it tomorrow? Finally, my aunt would be like, oh, we're going to cut it because such and such is coming by. Or we're going to cut it after church. And I would be so excited. And we would get that cut piece of watermelon sometimes on a piece of newspaper. And when we were really young, they wanted you to go outside because they didn't want the sticky, sweet, pink juice to be all over the house. And you would sit on the on the porch and eat your watermelon. That's what I remember about watermelons positivity, a really delicious, sweet snack on a hot day. That's what I wanted to center in this cookbook. And I know that for many decades that Black people and watermelon and fried chicken, too, were linked to really ugly, disgusting ads, And so I realized for a lot of Black people, that's what comes to their mind when they think about watermelon. And so I received that. I respect that. But for me, as I moved through this cookbook and through this process, I had to block that noise out. I had to move forward with centering joy and centering what I know for so many Black folks is a very fond memory of summer, of communing, of tradition. So we talked about the watermelon and red birds of Nicole's book title. But what about the subtitle, A Cookbook for Juneteenth and Black Celebrations? I wanted to ask her who she was thinking her audience is for this cookbook. When she was pitching Up South, she knew that was one of the publisher's concerns, as she told me in our 2016 conversation. I think that the the race factor is another layer. The marketing team is is sitting there thinking, who's going to buy her book? Is this a black book? Now Nicole's new book has Black right in the subtitle, a cookbook for Juneteenth and Black celebrations. She says that's partly just because she has more confidence now. She knows what she wants. And it's partly because of the evolution in the publishing industry. Publishing a cookbook for us, it's 
it can be a a release. It could be us sharing our gifts with the world. But for large publishing houses, <laughs> yeah, they're excited about all those things I just mentioned, but they also want to make money. I think that back in 2015, I didn't get that. Okay, I was I was emotional as I should be. I'm still emotional, but I also understand that I understand the business of cookbook publishing, the publishing industry in general um, for a long time would be like, well, we already have a black southern book. Do we need another one or we already have a soul food? There has been a lot of work done by my black colleagues and other colleagues as well to really define what's old food, what's West African food, what is regional Southern food. So I think the publishing industry has grown up a little bit and they understand that Black people are not a monolith. So back then, I think that's what I was getting at. I think that was my plea to, to the publishing world of like, hello, please understand, guys. I'm different. We're different. It, it occurred to me in reading the new cookbook that I think that I have probably been programmed on some level to think that something that's that features predominantly black people and looks like it's foregrounding black people and black culture isn't for me. Not that I truly want it to be that way or truly feel that way, but it's like it's been programmed into me and it's yeah. something that I have to consciously fight against. I don't think that sometimes when I'm, as you say, scrolling through um – White cookbooks. When I'm scrolling through Ronnie Lundy's cookbook, Vittles, I don't think that is not for me. I just look at him and I'm like, Ronnie is so beautiful. The writing is amazing. The recipes are stand out. I mean, I think what you're speaking to is something that we, all of us, have to have to work on. Like... You don't have to be at the center of everything. It don't have to be for you. Juneteenth, June 19th, 1865. That is a an American moment of jubilation. That is American history that centers and talks about Black people and equality. This cookbook 100% is for anyone who gets in the kitchen and they want to cook. And more importantly, for someone who wants to honor Juneteenth by creating a, a special dish or a awesome meal. That's first and foremost who this cookbook is for. And secondly, um, I've written this book. It is a love letter to, to Black people. It is a love letter to Juneteenth and Black celebrations. I am very deliberately speaking to Black people in the book, and that is a way of centering and honoring them. But that doesn't mean I didn't invite Dan to the cookout. <laughs> Nicole, I'll, I'll come to your cookout anytime. <laughs> I think you will have an invitation, Dan. Oh, I'm, I'm waiting for it. I'm ready. I'm ready. Don't bring the potato salad. <laughs> <laughs> you can bring a pasta salad. I'll let you right, bring a pasta right, fair salad. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Last week in the first part of this series, we heard about how Ebony's first food editor, Frida DeKnight, sometimes say the magazine's food coverage was by us, for us, meaning by and for a black audience that so rarely saw themselves in media. Maybe Nicole's Juneteenth cookbook is more by us, for everyone. As we wrap up, Nicole, I, I'd love to ask you to read the final paragraph from the introduction to your new book. I found this very moving, and I think it connects a lot of the ideas we've been discussing today and also throughout this series. 
This cookbook is intended to be light with the pleasures of good food and heavy with the weight of history. Every morning, I stand at my altar and ask the Most High if she is pleased with how I'm moving through the world. Do I reflect the goodness of my ancestors? On special occasions, when I'm slipping out of my clothes and jewelry, I wonder if I left breadcrumbs for a future generation to follow. As my candlelight flickers, I hear, well done. I know the red birds are out there, even in the dark. That, my friends, is Nicole Taylor. Her cookbook, Watermelon and Redbirds, is available now wherever you buy books. Please go out and get it. It is fantastic. And happy Juneteenth to everyone who is celebrating. Next week in the third and final part of our series, By Us for Everyone, I talk with Stephen Satterfield, host of the Netflix show High on the Hog and founder of Whetstone Media, one of the only Black-owned food media companies in the country today. I was very driven by the fact that it kept failing. There was no fanfare for the reception of Whetstone into the world. It was born into a world of indifference. And I guess I just couldn't accept that. That's next week. In the meantime, check out last week's episode where I visit the Ebony Test Kitchen, which has been restored as part of a new museum exhibit. Finally, if you're new to our show, please take a minute right now and favorite or subscribe or plus whatever the thing in your podcasting app is. Go to our show page and please just do that thing. It's called different things in different apps, but you'll figure it out. You're a smart person and then you'll be able to connect with our show and we'll be able to hang out more in the future. Thank you so much. This show is produced by me, along with senior producer... Emma Morgenstern. And producers... Andres O'Hara. And... Johanna Mayer. Our editor is... Tracy Samuelson. Additional editing by Halle Bay Ramdeen, Alexis Williams, and Oluwakemi Aladasui. Our engineer is... Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Eric Eddings. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Russell Green from Murrells Inlet, South Carolina. Reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.